When I was in high school, I worked part-time for a, a local veterinarian in my hometown. Great dude. And uh, one summer, Doc asked me to, uh, to go out the, the west door, uh, out to the, the west end of the property, and he asked me to cut down these bushes out there, just cut them all the way down to the ground get rid of them. They looked raggedy. His wife didn't like them. Now, they were those, those evergreen bushes that are really kind of sharp. It was super hot. I was, I'm kind of allergic to that stuff that makes, makes me itch like mad. So I really thought this was a terrible job, but I was the hired high school kid. What are you going to do? I went and got the bow saw and the hedge clippers, and I went out the west end of the clinic there around the corner, and, and I went to work on the bushes there. I was half, two-thirds of the way done, and Doc came out the west clinic door, and he did a literal double take, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm cutting out this bush. He said, I said, those bushes on the west end of the property, not outside the west door of the clinic. It was the only time I ever heard that man utter a foul word. Some say he was saving it for just such a moment. He then said, my wife is going to kill both of us. That, my friends, is, a, is doing a bad job poorly. We are, for the third week in a row, studying uh, 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul was given a bad job by God. A few weeks ago, we looked at the bad job. Saul was told by God to exterminate a people group called the Amalekites. We answered the question of why God would do such a thing uh, two weeks ago. But basically, God decided it was time for him to pour his judgment out on the Amalekites. And he tasked Saul with doing the work, the way Doc told me to cut out those bushes. He had determined the bushes needed to come out. I was tasked with the work. Then last week, we looked at how Saul did the bad job poorly. We looked at his disobedience. He was supposed to, he was tasked with exterminating all of the Amalekites. He didn't. He kept the king alive so that he could have his own personal war trophy. All of the livestock of the Amalekites were put under the ban, were, were to be destroyed. Saul didn't do that either. And that was the disobedience. Then we saw how people responded to that disobedience in last week's sermon. Uh, the prophet Samuel confronted Saul with his disobedience. Saul did what he tends to do. He did the same thing in chapter 13. He responded first with denial, denying that he had done anything wrong. Uh, 
Then he moved to uh, projection where he blamed, he projected the guilt onto someone else. No, the men were the ones who stole all that livestock. It's not my fault. Look over there. It's their fault. And rationalization is just when we try to make sense of, kind of try to figure out a way to say, you know, in this situation, it's probably the best thing that could have happened. Saul did that by saying, well, we're going to take, take those animals and use them in sacrifices to God. And we also saw last week that God, because of Saul's disobedience and his refusal to own his own disobedience, that God has now rejected Saul as king. As king. He said, I've chosen someone else who's better than you, he will say today as we read. Now, that picks us up to speed to where we want to dive in today. Do you remember this graphic? It's okay if you don't, if you weren't here, or if you just don't remember. It was like five weeks ago that I put it on the screen. But when we, when we studied chapter 13, I, I put this graphic on the screen to illustrate what sin does and how to rectify what sin does. See, our sin, the worst consequence of our sin is it knocks us out of fellowship with God. It gunks up our relationship with God. We should be walking in what God said is best because it's actually best. We should be walking in fellowship with God. We should be pursuing after what, what is in God's heart. Sin knocks us out of those things. Even if we are saved, redeemed, heaven-bound people, our sin knocks us out of what God says is best and out of our fellowship with God. Our sin cannot knock us out of heaven someday. That's over if we've trusted in Christ. But it does knock us off of our path of walking closely with the Lord. Now, the only way to get back into fellowship with God, a restored relationship, is through confession and repentance. Confessing sin is just when I, I see my sin the way God sees my sin, and I tell them, I tell Him as much. I stop doing denial, projection, rationalization. I stop making excuses and I tell God, you are right. I agree with you. My sin is as sinny as you think it is. And then repentance, in this context, repentance is a change in direction where I go back, I quit whatever I am doing, or if my sin is something I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not, I I quit not doing it, if you know what I mean, right? I turn my back on that sin and I go back to what God says is best. When we do that, as Christians, we are restored to fellowship with God immediately, absolutely, every single time. Because Christian, God is satisfied with the amount of punishment with which your sin has been punished. Jesus received all of the punishment your sin will ever deserve, require, or need. 
So when we sin, and we will, if we confess our sin, right, if we turn from our sin, we are restored back into full relationship with God, and He has no hard feelings. We can crawl right back up on our Father's lap, tell Him what we did, and move on. That's how we deal with sin, right? Sometimes there are consequences that, that will continue because of our sin, but that's how we deal with sin. Here's why I bring that up right now. Because twice so far in studying Saul, once in chapter 13 and once in chapter 15, I've alluded to the fact that Saul's refusal to confess and repent quickly became as big of a problem as the sin he refused to confess and repent of, right? Saul wouldn't, he wouldn't do this. He stayed stuck in this. And so in a big way, Saul gets rejected by God just as much for his failure to own his sin and repent of it as he gets rejected by God for the sin that he sinned. Right? Well, then today, as where we start reading, Saul is going to say these words. I have sinned. For I have disobeyed what the Lord commanded. And I disobeyed what you said as well, Samuel. I, I was afraid of the army. That was my problem. I was more afraid of man than I was of God. I followed their wishes instead of his. Now please forgive my sin. Go back with me so I can worship the Lord. Doesn't that sound like exactly like what God wanted to hear the whole time? Doesn't that sound like what Samuel was wanting Saul to say all along? Well, if this is all we had, we might think so. But Saul says this confession, and there's some stuff in there that sounds like repentance, but it doesn't work. Like it doesn't take. It doesn't stick. This passage makes really clear that Saul is just as rejected by God at the end of it as he is before he said these words. And so our question today is, like, what gives? I don't want you to read this and go, Pastor Matt, you have taught lots of times that confession and repentance is enough to restore us to a full relationship with God. But Saul said that, and it didn't work for him. So is confession and repentance, is that all it takes to be restored into a relationship with God? And if so, what do we make of this? That's what we want to talk about today. In part three of doing a bad job poorly, and our subtitle for this sermon is False Repentance. We're going to read uh, verses 24 through 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. We've read them before, but this is we're going to read them again because this is really what we're going to zone uh, zero in on today. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 24. 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of Samuel's robe and it tore. Verse 28, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not like a man that he should change his mind. Then King Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. These guys still aren't still as angry as they were a bit ago. But Samuel said to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed or hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. There's our passage. As, you, as we read through that portion of the chapter, I hope you uh, can understand why I said a minute ago that Saul's confession and his repentance, hey, well, I want to walk with Samuel, I want to worship God, whatever it was, it didn't stick. It didn't work. Because at the end of this, he's very much rejected, right? There's a kind of... There are some things that happen when we sin where we can feel real, genuine sorrow. We can say some things where we admit we are wrong and we can desire change and not be doing the right kind of sorrow, real confession and genuine repentance. There is a kind of confession and repentance that doesn't work in God's eyes. We see an example of that here in 1 Samuel 15 in Saul's life. It happens, but we're not really taught about it there. Fortunately for us, we are taught about it a couple thousand years later in the New Testament, and we're going to read just a couple of verses from the book of 2 Corinthians in just a minute that talks about what we will see as King Saul's problem. But before, but before we read that, you have to understand why Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes what he writes that we're going to read in just a second. Just a little context. We have two books 
from Paul to the church in Corinth, we call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians, right? Paul wrote other letters to them, though, we can tell by what he said in his books. We're going to read from 2nd Corinthians. And between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, okay, before 2nd Corinthians, Paul wrote another letter that we don't have in our Bibles. It's just lost to history. Paul calls it his severe letter. And what the severe letter was, is Paul was made aware of some sin in the church in Corinth. And kind of like the prophet Samuel toward King Saul, Paul, the apostle, he wrote a letter that confronted the church in Corinth with their sin. Okay? Now we're ready to read how they responded when they were confronted with their sin by the Apostle Paul. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, just verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, or godly sorrow, that produces a repentance that's without regret that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, or worldly sorrow, produces death. In this little two-verse passage, and I wish I could teach you more on either side of it, but we don't have time. Paul very clearly talks about two different kinds of sorrow that leads to two different results. There's godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. See, when, when we mess up, when we sin, and suddenly we're confronted with the reality of our mess up or our sin, there's going to be some consequences. We feel sorrow. Right? Unless we're some sort of sociopath or something. We feel sorrow, but not all sorrow is the same. We feel sorrow and we want things to be different. We wish things weren't the way they currently are. We want there to be change. But not all sorrow is godly sorrow. And not all change is true repentance. You see, remember back to part of our opening a graphic here. The worst consequence of sin is that it breaks my fellowship with God. The worst consequence of sin is that I'm doing something that's not best for my life according to God. And there may be other consequences, but this is the big consequence. And godly sorrow is a result of me when I'm confronted with my sin. Either my own conscience confronts me or someone who loves me enough to confront me confronts me. Godly sorrow happens when I realize I'm not where God wants me. I'm not walking with my Lord. It doesn't matter who I can convince I am. I'm not. 
That drives me to confess my sin and repent of my sin to go back after God's heart. Godly sorrow is always God-focused and others-focused. That means it's humble. Godly sorrow is I'm missing closeness with my God. I have sorrow about that. Godly sorrow makes me have sorrow for what I did that hurt someone else also. Godly sorrow, Paul continues in 2 Corinthians to talk about this, but godly sorrow motivates me to pay restitution, to go toward the people I have offended, to do whatever it takes to repair relationships. Because you see, sin always leads to death. Even for believers. Sin always leads to death. You've heard me say this a hundred times. You're going to hear it again. In the Bible, death is never the annihilation of one thing. Death is always the separation of two things. Right? My my death will be not when Maxwell is annihilated. I will still exist. My physical death will be when my spirit separates from my body. That separation is physical death. Before I came to know Christ, I was spiritually dead, separated from God, like permanently until I came to Christ. Um, When I sin, when we sin, it still lets the death seep in to our life. Because it causes separation. Do you, do you, can you think of a relationship in your life that's not good due to sin? That's the death seeping in there. When I sin, my sin no longer can separate me eternally from God. That's eternal death. No longer a consequence for the sin of a believer. But my sin can let the death seep into my relationship with God and my relationship with you if I sin against you. And godly sorrow is that sorrow that motivates me to do what it takes to cut the necrotic tissue, the death, out of my life with God with others. That's godly sorrow. Now, not all sorrow is like that. Paul says, so when we have sorrow that's godly sorrow, according to the will of God, it produces a kind of repentance that doesn't regret its own repentance. I'll do whatever it takes to lead to salvation, to save me from the death that's seeping into my life and my relationships. But there's another kind of sorrow, worldly sorrow, that just produces more death. Worldly sorrow looks like this. When I live just basically by my selfish desires, when what I want is things like status, significance in the world, I want to feel desirable, 
I want to feel like, to, I want to love and feel like I'm being loved. I want wealth. I want power. I want to seem impressive. Whatever. I want excitement. When I live with those things being sort of my idols, what I want to save me from the things in this world, it's very easy to believe that obeying God will actually hurt my chances to get this stuff. Sin will, will give me a, a better chance to keep this stuff. But when I sin, when I mess up and I lose what I've been living for, that will always result in worldly sorrow. And it's completely natural. It's possible to have both. Again, if you don't experience worldly sorrow sometimes, I think you might be a sociopath. Right? But worldly sorrow sort of works like this. Maybe I want, I really uh, want to be accepted by other people. I really, I want to be thought of as a good person. I want to be uh, just motivated by people thinking I'm a great guy. Well, then I do something illegal, immoral, just plain stupid. I get caught stealing or cheating or whatever. This, I will have sorrow, but it's possible that my only sorrow is due to losing what I really wanted. Not necessarily separation from God or damage to relationships. I've lost something I want. Like, I want this job. I love this job. But if I do something that gets me fired from this job, maybe the sorrow I have is that I no longer have this job. Maybe uh, I want to be free, but I do something that gets me sent to prison. Right? The sorrow I have might be because I've lost my freedom. I want to be on the team. I did something, I violated the rules, and now I'm kicked off. Right? All that stuff is natural. It's normal. It's not even really wrong. But look what Paul says about it. Paul says this, that kind of worldly sorrow just produces more death. Do you know why that is? So I mess something up and I lose something that I really live for. I get stuck down here in worldly sorrow. Everything I do to try and get back that other thing is probably going to just lead to more sin. That's where I do projection, rationalization, denial, false repentance so that I can keep what I want. Anything I do to just get me restored back to what I've been living for is going to lead to more separation. I'll be avoiding these people. Oh man, I'll be avoiding the people that I offended or the people that know. I'll have to, maybe if I can turn enough people against those folks, then they'll still think I'm a good person and people will hate them instead of me. Right? If you think about that, that worldly sorrow, if all I want is to get back into the status I enjoyed, the significance of feeling desirable, whatever I'm calling love, wealth, power, it will be more sin and it will be 
It will keep me further away from God because it won't involve real confession and real repentance. Do you understand at least a little bit the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? There's a definite difference. Now we need to go back into 1 Samuel chapter 15 and sort of test this out. Because did King Saul's confession and repentance work? No. So we should be able to go back and test this and see that his, he probably had worldly sorrow and false repentance. Otherwise it would have worked. Right? That's exactly what we find. You may want to keep your, your Bible open because all the scripture that we're going to be reading isn't on the screen. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we know that Saul was motivated very selfishly. Saul was the kind of guy that, like he told his army one time, you can't get what you need unless I get what I want. Saul was motivated by feelings of dominance, dominance adoration from his men. Why did, why did King Saul keep, keep King Agag alive? He wanted that war trophy. He wanted to feel dominant, superior. Why did he keep all those, let all those animals live? It could be for money, but I don't know that he really necessarily needed the money, but he sure got more adoration from his men. He didn't want to tell his men they had to destroy all all that stuff. Saul lived for the trappings of the throne. That's why, for Saul, that's what he lived for. Obeying God made it less likely that Saul could keep what he wanted, what he had his heart set on. Isn't that why we sin? Think about it. Isn't that why we sin, even when we know the sin we sin is wrong? Because somewhere inside we've bought the lie, I will get more of what I want from disobeying God than I will get if I obey God. Isn't that true? That's what Saul does. In Saul's mind, the worst consequences in his life would come from obeying God disobedience will work better toward getting me this stuff I live for. And so that's why when Saul is first confronted, he uses denial, projection, rationalization. Why? Because he's trying to keep the stuff he wants. But then the game changes on Saul in verse 23. In verse 23, the situation changes when Samuel says, Saul, I reject your rationalization, your denial, um, your projection, and I got to tell you, God has rejected you as king. Whoa. Now the game has changed. Because now, now what Saul really wants is really being threatened. Now he's not just possibly going to lose his war trophy, the king of the Amalekites, and a whole bunch of sheep. He's going to lose the whole thing. See, Saul's problem is, Saul wants the job, he wants the stuff that comes with the job as king way more than he wants the God who gave him the job. 
also our problem. Right? We want God's stuff more than we want God half the time. Only then, when Saul is like, man, I'm gonna, this stuff up here, this is going to be replaced with disgrace. And so then Saul changes tactics. Then he tries confession and repentance. That's when Saul says, okay, I've sinned. Oh, okay, I've sinned. I disobeyed. Is that what you wanted to hear? Just, God, just come back with me. Please forgive my sin. Let's don't let this get out of hand. Only when he's threatened with the loss of what he really wants, which is not God. It's God's stuff. Now, if these verses were all we had, verses 24 and 25, we might not know that Saul like, didn't mean it the right way or that this was worldly sorrow. But right after this, um, in verse 26, Samuel ain't having it. He rejects his confession as not genuine. I won't go back with you. Um, uh, verse 20, he, he, he turns to leave. Uh, verse 27, King Saul grabs Samuel's robe and, and it tears. And Samuel says, that's basically how God's torn the kingdom away from you. You might still be hanging on to a shred of it, but it's gone. And then... Saul, uh, we see Saul's heart motivation in verse 30. He says the quiet part out loud. In verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned. Just please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Go back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. Do you see Saul's true colors there? You see what he's saying? Like, listen, 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 listen. I know I've sinned. But will you come back with it with me and, and make everyone think I'm still God's guy? Because like you don't understand, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose the whole thing here. I can't go back in disgrace. So you come and play along. See, to Saul, both God and God's prophet are just a means to Saul's ends. They're just, he just wants to use God and Samuel to keep what he wants. God will not be the means to our ends. God has to be the beginning and the end. And don't you know, this is why many people try Christianity for a bit. My life isn't going the way I want it. I'm not getting what I want out of life. I'll try some religion. I'll try some Jesus. I will see if God will give me what I want. When God doesn't play that game, they bounce. No, it doesn't work. Well, God doesn't work for that because He won't be the means to our ends. Now, Samuel, Samuel does go back with Saul. Um, and we, we read Saul worships God. It's a sham. Samuel goes back with Saul so he can hack Agag to pieces, so he can uh, do the obedience, finish the job that God called Israel's leadership to do. If you won't do it, king, I will. 
And then they, they go their separate ways for the rest of their lives. Now, it's time to conclude, it's time to land the plane here. And what I really want to do, I would really, I want to teach us, I want to teach us how to do godly sorrow instead of worldly sorrow. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't think I can. Because the problem that led to worldly sorrow in King Saul was what was on the top line. Once Saul had decided he was living for things other than fellowship with God, worldly sorrow becomes inevitable whenever he loses stuff in his life. See, even when Saul tries confession, the only thing he wants restored to is what God was taking away because of his sin. He wasn't trying to be restored to God. He just wanted restored to what he wanted, what he was living for to begin with. Does that make sense? For us, if, if what I really value and live for is status, significance, feeling desired, loving and being loved by someone else, wealth, power, if that's what I really love for, uh, live for, it doesn't matter what sin I sin that makes me lose some of that stuff. Worldly sorrow will be the result and I will just try to arrange uh, the circumstances of my life to get back what I was living for that I may have lost. I just, I want that that seems like love, that seems like significance. I want... Uh, projection, rationalization, denial, false repentance, whatever. Real godly sorrow will only happen if what breaks our heart is the way we've hurt God. The more we see God's best in our lives as our number one need, the more likely we are to respond with godly sorrow when we sin. The more we live for everything else, the less likely. Like it's, I think it's impossible. So in some ways, the best I can do is help us recognize which we are doing. Like if I'm really honest, I'm jammed up in some sin, I'm in some terrible situation, what is it I'm trying to get back to? What is it I'm trying to be restored to? Is it just the way everybody thinks about me? What are they going to say? Oh man, come back with me and make it seem like everything is okay. What is it I want back? And what is it I've actually lost When we recognize that our sorrow is worldly sorrow, sometimes that's the only hope we have of going in a different direction. Being restored in the only way it's possible. God, here is my sin. 
I know it is ugly in your sight and it has damaged my relationship with you. What do I need to do to go in a different direction to get back to what I need most, which is your best, which is what you say is what I need most? In some ways, worldly sorrow or godly sorrow, they just happen depending upon what we feel our greatest need is. And we have to remind our hearts that our greatest need is always God. Now, the good news is that he's, our sin's already been punished. The only thing that will keep our confession and repentance from restoring us into a full relationship with God is that that's not what we want restored to. We're trying to be restored to something less than His best. Pray with me and we'll finish. Our Father, um, once again, we read the story of Saul and it is like a mirror. Uh, the King David is coming, Lord, in this story. And I think when we read this story, we want so badly to be David. We see ourselves as David. And every time I read this, I'm Saul, I'm Saul, I'm Saul. But God, you put this here so that we could recognize, in this case, our, godly, our, our lack of godly sorrow and our worldly sorrow, God, because we are still chasing what's less than you. When we lose what we want, we still want to be restored to something that is going to cause more death. More sin, more separation from you. It's, it's not going to fulfill what we need because only you can. God, show us our worldly sorrow imprint on our hearts uh, the desire to walk with you and to enjoy your best and help us to pursue real repentance where we will do whatever it takes to be restored into what our, is our greatest need, your love, fellowship with you, and your best. And may you be glorified um, while we do those things. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close.